Have you ever absolutely blown a first impression? Maybe it was that first date where you showed up pitting out after running six blocks to be on time and then tripped over the tablecloth at the restaurant falling flat on your face? Just me? Or maybe that one time you showed up to that important business meeting after a bad lunch and just couldn't help but pass gas almost continuously in that very, very small conference room. Probably just me again. But life throws you some curveballs that will leave you absolutely wondering, what if I had a second chance? But in the world of B2B SaaS, there are rarely second chances on making a first impression. And sometimes the bad first impression doesn't ruin the next date or the chance of getting the next meeting. But those first impressions are definitely burned into the psyche and make it that much harder to climb whichever hill you're climbing. So it's probably just easier to nail that first impression in the first place. Someone who thinks intensely about those first impressions in B2B SaaS is Wasim Dar, the founder and CEO of Pilot. Wasim's an incredibly deep thinker and serial founder, and in our talk, we went over a myriad of tactics and strategies that go into scaling a successful B2B SaaS business, including nailing that first impression with sales and onboarding. His wisdom and expertise are coming up next. For Profit Will Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Wasim Dar dives deep on growth and those first impressions. We talk about end-to-end -end ownership of a problem, having a marketing-led sales motion, how to nail your content distribution plan, applying TLC to every aspect of customer experience, and identifying a consultative advisory-driven salesperson. Who are you? What do you guys do? Sure. So I'm Wasim. I'm CEO and co-founder of Pilot. Pilot specializes in bookkeeping, tax prep, and CFO services for high growth startups, ranging from pre-seed to series D. And when you work with us, you get the expertise of a finance team that takes all this work off your plate so you can focus on your business. And we're the largest provider in the space. We work with a thousand plus startups. So we're really, really great at seeing and helping with that scaling journey. That's really cool. And what I love about this type of business is it's normally the thing that product people are like, oh, wait, this is, you know, this is an AI or nuclear fusion or like some fancy UX. It's it's very much, a, you know, I don't want to call it a boring business because I feel like it's offensive, but it's one of those businesses where then you start getting into it and you realize like, oh, the tech has to be really good because there's so many complications and you're taking manual things and making them automated. And so I guess why this? Like why this over anything else you could do, you know, given your background? Sure. Incidentally, I love boring businesses. I think boring businesses are the best businesses to start and invest in. And we could talk about that at length if that's something you're interested in. This is really the culmination of a long journey for me and my co-founders, which is Jeff, Jessica, and I all met a million years ago at MIT undergrad, where we'd studied computer science. Right out of school, we started a company called K-Splice that did software updates without rebooting that Oracle acquired. We were at Oracle for a year and a day, transitioned over the tech, kind of got out of there, started another company together called Zulip. It was a group chat tool for businesses, sort of like a Slack-like product at a time when Slack was making a mobile game. Dropbox acquired it. We were at Dropbox for about two years, helping out on the product and engineering side. And when we set out to start Pilot, we wanted to solve a problem we very, very viscerally had ourselves, which is in our previous companies, you know, as a startup founder, you want to be devoting all your energy towards you know, hiring and building the product and figuring out the sales strategy. And we found that so much of our time was consumed by this back office stuff, specifically on the accounting side, but just more generally. 
And so we said, look, we want to build the service that we wish existed. And importantly, when you hire a pilot, it's not, oh, here's a piece of software. It's, well, I've got a point of contact and a team that is actually taking care of this for me end to end. So really, ultimately, we were solving a problem we ourselves had, which is, I think, actually where some of the best business ideas come from generally. Yeah, you can also use your own product, which allows you to kind of figure out what's good or bad. And I guess what's interesting, just to kind of like scope this for people, because I think that we all feel this pain, but we don't necessarily, we feel it very acutely, like just as an example, when we started off, all of a sudden it was like, oh crap, payroll. And then it was like, oh, taxes. Oh, uh, expense. Like it's all these little like moments that pop up and you don't think of like, what is the totality of this, of your product basically, or like the solution you're going after? Like, where does it start? Where does it end? Which I know is a kind of a weird question. So I can rephrase if that's hard. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the question is there's today and there's in the limit. What does it look like? I think the 20 year plan is really pilots you to run your entire back office for you because all this stuff does bleed into itself. And you do want someone with expertise helping shepherd the whole thing. Like it's pretty wild. Every business owner has to sort of individually reinvent the wheel to figure out, oh, these are the tools I should use and this is how I should stitch them together and these are the providers I need to hire and these are like the quirks about like, it's totally wild that folks are reinventing this stuff from scratch. And our vision actually in many ways is a lot like if you look like the history of something like Amazon Web Services, which is pre-AWS, a big fraction of your engineering time was devoted to running the infrastructure. In our first company, we had a bunch of Linux servers and a data center somewhere. And like someone had to go and rack them there and periodically the hard drive died and so had to go and swap them out. And then AWS came along and said, look, we can run the infra for you and we're going to do it differently than anyone else. We're going to do it in a way that is more scalable. You want more RAM? Click here. You want more CPUs? Click here. Like it's magic. And we're sort of like the AWS for your back office, which is today everyone is out there kind of like racking their own servers or like figuring out how to connect Gusto and Brex and Expensify and all this stuff. And it's just like everyone is inventing it from scratch in this very bespoke way. But there are real economies of scale of solving the problem, solving it well, solving it scalably. And I think ultimately that's Pilot's ambition. If we can run the infra for your company you can focus on developing the app that is your company. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And is that, because there've been like back office solutions in the past and, and they've mainly been like humans, right? Like, hey, we'll we'll have this human here, this human there, or like stitching everything together. And so from like a product perspective, how did you like change this, right? Like how did you like think about it to like, you know, not just stitch things together? Because you could offer us like an interface, right? Which is interesting, but right. it's like, you guys go way beyond that, which I want you to talk about a little bit from a product perspective. Yeah, so- I think the insight here was twofold. Insight number one is the customer doesn't want to buy accounting software. Like I've never heard a founder say, oh yeah, I can't just like set me up with your better version of QuickBooks or whatever. Like, no, what the founder or the business owner wants is solve this problem for me and solve it better than anyone else will. Like I'm coming to you because you're the experts and I know you'll be able to scale with me. So I think the interface or the abstraction that the customer would like is the end-to-end ownership of the problem. And the reason that it can't just be an army of humans is fundamentally, if you want to do it well and you want to do it well at scale, you need the computer to be at the core of what's happening. It's the only way to actually do the work reliably. Like it is easy to do a good job for one customer. It's reasonably easy to do a good job for 10 customers. It gets like pretty tough to do a good job for 20 customers. It's basically impossible to do a good job for 100 customers. And then it is literally just structurally, you're, it's, you're not going to be capable of doing it for 1,000 customers and doing yeah. it well. Unless you are smart about process and having computers do the things that should be computers. 
And if you think about pilots growth, it is people with doing what people do best and software doing what software does best. And the two kind of fusing together in a way that allows us to serve thousands of customers in a really, really high quality white glove way that is honestly better than they would get if just someone was doing it entirely by hand because the computer doesn't make mistakes. Like you want the computer doing the things that should be the computer and you want the person doing the things that should be the person. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that you're seeing this trend, particularly in product where, and we've always had this trend, but it's like you either need a workflow product where it's like active usage is the game, like measuring that active usage or this thing that we've kind of coined is, and I don't know if we've coined it, but like I like to call it anti-active usage where it's just like, no, like do not use it. Like we take care of things or you use it to more monitor it, but you're not actually doing the work because like robots, you know, or computers are actually taking care of things. I think for you though, what what I'm kind of curious about is like everyone, when it comes to their back office, like there's the standard customer, I'm sure. Who's just like, just do it. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. And then there's like this other group that's like, everyone's a snowflake, like a beautiful snowflake of like, well, the way I do my expenses is this. And I don't like this setting and I don't like this. And how do you kind of like square, like first, like, do you see that with your product? And then second, how do you square that with you know, kind of telling them what to do, I guess, is like the the more aggressive way to say it versus like providing some sort of flexibility because that can make the product like spiral out of control, I imagine. Yeah. So the nice thing, again, is we sort of have the luxury of deciding is the computer going to do this or is the person going to do this? And so if you insist on some totally bespoke workflow, as long as we price it correctly, we should be able to accommodate it. Okay. Now, I think that what we have seen very firsthand in the market is actually our customers would love for us to come and say, this is what the best practice is. And and if you set it up in this way, like we can take all of this friction off your plate. And sometimes that does require a little pushback. Sometimes we have to say, listen, the reason you're coming to us, as opposed to hiring someone on Upwork or using the provider down the street or whatever, yeah. is because we know this stuff. We do it for a thousand plus people. We do it at a scale that no one else does. And trust us with all of these reps, with all of these other companies, we have landed on this particular playbook because it is what's best. Yeah. And so I think our customers do want a little bit of like, give me best practices. It's not, it's not exactly tell me what to do, but it's tell me what best in class looks like. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's one of those things where you can take advantage in a good way of the like curse of knowledge, right? Like when I'm starting out or even if even now, like a lot of these accounting practices and things like that, like I'm not going to go deep into learning learning them like you can tell me and I can trust you naturally because it's not something that like I feel like I know enough about like I'm I know I don't know anything about it so I could just like hand right. it off to you I think it's many ways it's like look when you go to your doctor you're not like, no, I think you should prescribe me X, Y, Z. It's like, no, you're going to them because you trust that they know what they're talking about and they're well referenced and they like, they've seen a lot of people and exactly. They have, you know, they have a bunch of insight that you don't like, if you, if you already knew what to do, you wouldn't go to the doctor. Totally. And that's always the fun part because I'm sure so your customer base, I know you said everything from, uh, I think you said pre-seed up to, you know, series D, right? Wide, you know, requirements, obviously, but also yes. like a really kind of, for lack of a better phrase, like funky go to market, right? Because you have, you know, I, I'm sure like the series D folks, they get it because they already, you're like more of an automation of what they've already cobbled together if they're not sure. using you already. But then all of the the early stage folks, like those are some hard people to like sell to oftentimes and they're not necessarily worth that much. Right. And so tell us, like, I'd love to get into, because I think you guys have done a phenomenal job of like, what's your framework? What's your strategy, your tactics of like going after this, like 
wide, important, but sometimes finicky for, to say it nicely, like customer base, especially the earlier stage folks. And so I'll have you first react to that and then we can kind of dig deeper and you know, hopefully build a framework for it. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting here is that the motion at Pilot is a very marketing-led sales motion. And the reason here is sort of twofold. One is that it's not obvious a priori, like when there is a compelling event that requires you to buy bookkeeping or tax prep. I mean, we know like the year ends or the tax deadline is coming up. Like there's some moments where it's like, okay, yes, very clearly you're going to be in market. But if you're starting a new company or, you know, you've just raised a little bit of money and you're, it's time to get serious about professionalizing the finances, this, there are signals that exist in market, but they're not the easiest to pick up on necessarily. And so our kind of go-to-market motion requires us to make you aware of our brand. So with the, when the time is right, you will come to us and you'll say, hey, I'm interested in like getting up and running on pilot. And I think that's maybe piece one. Piece two is this idea that normally if you're buying something, the buyer has a very detailed sense of exactly what it is they want. Maybe even to the point where it's like, I want these features or I want these specifications or you know, I know all about buying CPUs and I, I want the spec sheet to match these parameters. Whereas hiring pilot is much more often, to, to go back to the doctor analogy, hiring pilot is much more often like picking your doctor. Where when I pick my doctor, it's like I go to the office, I like see if it looks clean. Oh, they're wearing a white coat. There's like a diploma on the wall. My friends say that they're good, like checks out. Like I'm not going to quiz them to be like, what was your grade in immunology? Or like, sure, sure. what does the pancreas do? You know, I'm <laughs> the reason I'm coming to them is because like you seem to know about this thing that I don't know about that I have a problem with. Like that is sort of how I make the hiring decision or the buying decision for my doctor. Sure. And similarly for pilot, it's like, look, you folks are experts in this space. You do this more than anyone else does. I've heard good things about you from my friends or the people in the network. Like, yes, I will sign up. So the the motion is a very brand-based sales motion because it, it's super high trust where the average buyer, unsurprisingly, like they don't know about this stuff and they want to hire an expert who does know more about them than they about this thing than they do. That's interesting. If we go a little bit deeper on the brand part, because brand always, I think it's a misunderstood rap, right? And and I actually am not, you know, a brand expert by any means, but it's one of those things where, you know, the first question, well, how do you measure it, right? But then sure. the second question is also like, it's always huff with brand because you have awareness type content where it's just like, I don't know what they do, but this was cool that I read this, watched this, saw this ad, yeah. whatever it is. And yeah. then there's also the like deep, like fear-based content sometimes of like, this sure. is what you miss out when you don't have a good bookkeeper, that type of thing. So like, right. tell us a little bit about, or go a little bit deeper on brand and like how you think about brand and also like, you know, as specific as possible on like, you know, the strategy there. So I think everyone wants to work with companies that get them. Like you as a buyer, you're looking to see, oh, this vendor or this partner understands me. And so I'm going to work with them because they get X, Y, Z. So for us, a lot of our initial energy, and this came very naturally because like, again, this is our third startup. This very much is our world. But a lot of our positioning was really about like, we were a startup too. We get startups. Like I am a three-time founder. I understand your journey. So like in the early days, it was literally like I called you up or my co-founder Jeff called you up or my co-founder Jessica called you up. And it's like, look, you know, I know what you're going through because I also, you know, this is my third startup. 
trust us, you're in good hands. Like we've seen around the corners, we know where this is going, like we can take care of you. Now what that looks like from a brand perspective is like, it's about leaning into content that is highly relevant to our audience. And interestingly, it's not like 10 things you need to know about bookkeeping. It's actually like, how do we write stuff that is actually authentic and appealing and useful for our target audience, even if it has nothing to do with accounting. And let me give you a, a great example of this. We recently published a piece, actually we do this every year, Pilots Founder Salary Survey, where we survey technology startup founders in a variety of markets and variety of industries. And we put together a comprehensive guide that's like, this is what you as a founder should be paying yourself, cut by geo, cut by stage, cut by amount raised, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason we do that is because founders ask us this question all of the time. It's super useful. It's very helpful information. It actually has very little to do with literally are doing your bookkeeping or your tax prep, but it's, it signals to the market, oh, Pilot knows startups. Pilot gets what I'm about. And so that's, that same through line is present in like the content we produce, in the events that we run, in the like nurture sequences that we send to folks and the content that's on the website, like as much as possible, we think about the strategy as how do we make you aware of us? And with each of those touch points, how are you left with one, something that's actually useful to you and the impression that like, oh, these folks get what I'm about. So that when the time comes, when we can solve a problem you really have, you're like, well, yeah, these, these folks are of my world. They understand what I'm struggling with or what I'm dealing with. Like, of course, I'm going to work with them as opposed to someone who's not going to speak the languages fluently. Yeah, that's interesting. And if I go like one layer deeper, if we go one layer deeper on that. So is it something where you've kind of, I know you're a big advocate or you tweeted recently about, you know, you're not necessarily a creative genius. You just talk to your customers. I like that little, the little three thread that you did or three tweet thread. Is it something where in that research, do you, have you now discovered like, these are the three things and, and I'm just making this up. But like, these are the three things that every lead needs to hear. Therefore, like anytime someone comes in, this is our nurture campaign. Or is it more like, and maybe it's both like, okay, this quarter, these are the like six things in these two categories we're going to do. Like, how do you, how do you structure if we go, if I was like, cool, I'm on board now I want to like get my tempo and my cadence of the things I publish or the things I do. Like, how do you think about that in terms of campaigns and things like that? Yeah. So for the startup market, like it's actually comparatively easy for us because like I'm basically writing content that I would want to read myself. So I have some cheat codes there. I think in industries that are less sort of like native for me personally, that's where you really, really especially need to just spend a ton of time with the customers to say, well, look, what are they asking? What is top of mind for them? Like, what are your top three hair on fire problems? Can we produce something that helps you with those things? Even again, if that has nothing to do with literally what it is we do. So for example, we had a great blog post a while ago about like, you know, best practices for getting your, making your first sales higher or like thinking about strategies for your first sales. And that has nothing to do with bookkeeping or tax prep or budgeting or whatever. But the person who reads that is also probably the buyer for pilot. Yeah. It's like, it's the startup founder or it's the business owner. We, we did a similar article for e-commerce companies about like how to think about what your KPIs are or like, you know, best practices and like, you know, some like, so you start an e-commerce company 101, here's what you need to know. It's like, I think we really try to pay attention to what are questions our customers are actually asking? What are they looking for? How can we help solve one of their top three problems? Even if the solution, again, has very little to do with the specific thing that we do, because this is, this is fairly top of funnel content, right? We're trying to make you aware that we exist, that we know what we're talking about, that we have authority in your space. And then over time, you know, we will 
when it's time for you to actually buy something, hopefully we will be top of mind for you. Yeah. What's the cadence of this content? Like you're doing something new every week, one big thing a month. Like how do you, how do you think about that? It's a mix of stuff. We have blog posts that we try to publish basically once a week. We have sort of maybe like a more premiere or like featured piece of content that is typically on the kind of monthly cadence. We do a monthly webinar or event. So there's, there's a, you know, there's a content calendar that happens kind of at a variety yeah. of paces. And do you support a lot of that with like demand gen or, you know, ads and things like that? So is that from stitching together a playbook, you have weekly plus a premiere thing, plus an event, all that gets supported by ads to kind of like fill the funnel. Is that pretty much the, the funnel basically there? That's exactly right. And I think very, very critically before you do anything, you have to understand the distribution plan. And before you do anything, you should really have the brief. Who is this for? Like, why are yep. we making this? What is the point of this thing? Is it about awareness? Is it about trying to actually drive conversion? Like, you know, who is it for? What is the objective? And how are we actually going to get it into the hands of folks? Is this, okay, we... The distribution plan is we're going to run ads on LinkedIn is the distribution plan. Like, like how do we actually make sure that it, once we produce this thing that is really good, that it actually gets into the hands of people? Are we going to promote it on social? Are we going to email to our database? Are the sales reps going to use it as part of the sales process? Like it, the saddest thing is when you produce a really awesome piece of content or you have a good plan for a really great event or whatever, but you haven't thought about how to get it into the world. And it's like, well, why did you do all this work? We made this great thing. Like it's not going to benefit anyone if they can't see it. So I, I recommend in general, as you think about like briefing a piece of content or an event or whatever you're going to do is like actually do that work backwards. Like what does success look like? What are the metrics we're trying to move? And how are we actually going to get this in front of people? What's like the standard distribution plan right now, let's say for one of your events or premiere pieces of content on a monthly basis? We'll do something else like almost on every channel. Like we'll do paid ads, we'll post about it on LinkedIn and Twitter, we'll email to our database, we'll like train the sales team on it so they can thoughtfully inject it or maybe it shows up in their email signature. Like it is this like, you know, if we have oh, something that's actually good and the bar to produce something is like, if it's not good, we shouldn't release it. It's hard. You know, there's a sort of like, let's try a couple of different, oh, we'll like pass it along to our partners to see if they want to promote it to their customer. Like, you know, there's a variety of kind of touch points we'll use here. That's cool. And so we have this premier piece of content, brandy focus, maybe not directly tied to the product, sometimes not even directly, not even tied to it at all. Those folks come in for the event or maybe to consume the piece of content. What happens from there? Like, you know, um, attribution is always tough, but like, sales takes over, like standard kind of inside sales model. Like what, what does that look like for you guys? It depends on the content. Like if you request a copy of our founder salary survey and you download it from our website and now you're in Salesforce and we've tagged you, okay, this is the campaign you came from. You probably like don't want a sales rep to call you up and be like, go buy pilot. Like it's just, it's, it's a little bit too far. Sure. So fine. We, we know that we have that touch. And so maybe we like put you on our nurture track email newsletter where once a month we'll email you, you know, useful stuff for founders. And maybe we'll like occasionally show you a LinkedIn or a Facebook ad. And like we look for some hand raising behavior. Like if you do something that suggests that you want to talk to us, then sure. cool, we'll reach out. But if you don't, we don't like I don't want to create the association that like, oh, you downloaded this piece of content and now you're gonna be like incessantly sales, spam sales, by sales, our sales, sales team. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. like if you are not in the headspace to actually want to buy the thing or to evaluate a solution it's just going to totally backfire if we're like hey let's do a call next tuesday to talk about accounting it's like well no my top three problems right now are you know a b and c and i'm not ready to think about this particular problem yeah 
And it's kind of interesting when you think about like the other part of your framework was the expertise piece, like the, you know, you're talking to your doctor. Does that, I'm sure that comes in some of the brand aspects, even if it's not really related to the product. It's like, oh, you get me, therefore I can trust you. Does a lot of that come in the sales process then? Because I'm sure that's where you're handling most of those objections. Um, So what's that kind of look like? Or maybe ask more broadly, assuming you're kind of intersplicing some of this expertise stuff in the content, where else are you splicing that into to kind of the experience? It's got to be everywhere. It's got to be in every touch. Like it's got to be the website. It's got to be the initial call with the sales rep. It's got to be the actual like onboarding flow once you've purchased. Like at every point, we really need to convey you're in good hands. You made the right decision. We know we're talking about like you know that that again we're for you and here's a this is a little bit of a silly example if you're buying i don't know a wireless router or like a computer and you're talking to the sales rep and like you just like don't get a really good vibe from the sales rep or maybe they're like sloppy on follow-ups or whatever you may still buy the thing and you're not going to assume that like it's going to work less well like you're like well the computer is going to do what the computer does certain no matter who sold it to me or that it's, it's going to route the packets just as well whereas for pilot if you talk to the sales rep and you kind of get the vibe that like this person doesn't know what they're talking about or it's not a very professional experience or the ball was dropped. Your assumption is like, oh, well, they must not be good at accounting either. Because again, you're not buying a piece of software or a piece of hardware from us. You're buying the pilot team is going to take care of me. And so the stakes in many ways are actually much higher in the sales process because if not only do we like have the product knowledge and like the right talk track, if the experience doesn't feel good, the customer will assume not oh, the sales rep was bad, but the product is good. They'll assume, oh, this company is actually not for me or they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's got to be really complicated though because obviously you guys have scaled considerably and I don't know how big your sales team is. But to be frank, there's a lot of really bad salespeople out there. <laughs> and sure. It's yeah. not because they're bad people necessarily. It's just like they've had really bad advice on how to sell. And when you're selling something that's more advisory or trust-based, the bar has to be much higher. And so has that been really complicated to, you know, and I'm making an assumption that you've hired a ton of salespeople. Is that is that been like really hard to like not only filter in the beginning, but also like enforce, you know, when you have that sales team selling? I think the biggest challenge for us, we, we have learned a lot about the profile of person that is successful at pilot in a sales role. And yeah. this is going to sound like a little arrogant or impolite, but like our sales team is just smarter than the average sales team. Yeah. And I think they just, the, you have to be to do the role well. It's an extremely consultative sale. It is very white glove. It is like, if we don't think we can do it or we think we're going to do a bad job, we just tell you that. And if we're not sure, we say we don't know, and we're going to pull someone in on the next call to really get into the weeds with you. And it is because it's just like the stakes are just, again, the stakes are really high. If the sales process doesn't feel good, it impacts customer NPS for like the whole, and first of all, we probably just don't even get the sale. Or if we do, it like has started off on the wrong foot where the customer is going to assume that the service is not very good. Yeah, that's interesting. How'd you go about filtering that? Obviously a little bit of guess and check. Maybe I guess like, how do you identify, uh, I shouldn't say smart salesperson, but how do you identify a good consultative advisory driven salesperson? Well, I mean, ideally your interview process looks like your actual job. In other words, I don't really like these kind of like 
tricky questions. It's just like, let's actually try to simulate the experience as much as we can. So like, hey, here's the sample customer email you received. How would you respond? Or let's do a mock call. Or like, you know, that there's a bunch of stuff we do kind of in the interview process. And there's a bunch of stuff we do in the kind of like ramping and training process where there are sort of two profiles that we're very successful at kind of hiring from. One is the kind of like classic tech seller where our job from a kind of a rep ramping and training perspective is, okay, how do we teach you what you need to know about accounting so that you can talk about this credibly? The second is a profile we sort of call reformed accountant, which is like you were at one of the big four firms and you decided, hey, actually, I don't really like this job that much. I actually really like talking to people. I like yeah. the client facing part of the role. And so there you sort of have the accounting knowledge. And then we say, fine, how do we train you up on the basics of, you know, executing this kind of tech SaaS style sales process well? And so there's sort of two parallel tracks. And I think we we look for a spike in, you know, ideally both, but certainly one of these areas. I would rather have the like, you know, a really seasoned accountant who loves to talk to people, but who has never used Salesforce before. We can like train you to be effective. Or I want to get the like very consultative tech seller who is smart and hungry, who we can teach the basics of accounting so that they can also sell effectively. I think we've seen success with both of those profiles. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we, I don't know if you know anything about our business, but we know we have a very similar like advisory driven sales and it's the smart salesperson aspect, I think is something we struggle with because- You know, when you interviewed a hundred people, and it, again, it's not that they're not smart, so we should probably not sure, use sure. that word. It's just they're they're not wired for that consultative or like advisory driven, you know, sales process. It's, it's a different it's motion. A, it's a different motion. Totally. And so it's it's just when you interview a hundred and. 85 of them are, you know, and, and 85 of them are more like featurey traditional sales motion, let's say it can get sure. really frustrating. And so I, I, it gives me hope that you guys have a pretty large sales team that that tends to go for this. I also really liked, uh, you wrote an article on your Substack about, I can't remember what you wrote, what you said, but it was something like each, e- like an email can only have one objective, right? Like an email can only have one objective. And that's something that like, we talk a lot about because what I've noticed is that someone who's a little more consultative advisory understands that the sale is a multi-move game. And so it's like, I'm going to try to get this, then the next thing I'm going to try to get, so on and so forth. And whereas the kind of like kitchen sink sales folks, maybe a better way to say it, it's like, here's everything, you know, like you in, right. you know, you in, you know, that type of a thing. And it's more of a numbers game. So kind of when, when you look at this, like the one thing when I was thinking about when you were talking about the consultative or advisor driven sales is like, sometimes you do so well at the trust that the person doesn't really understand exactly what they're buying. And then it sets like a weird, ironic expectation where you're like, oh, we didn't do anything wrong in the sales. Pro- we actually had a really good sales process. But all of a sudden, they're like angry, right? Right. Do you ever, maybe not angry, but do you ever run into that? Because it's so trusting. Like, tell us a little bit about that. I I mean, I think one of the themes of our sales process, just echoing what you said, in some cases has been like thoughtfully slow it down. Interesting. Which is let's make sure we understand what your problem is, what you're trying to solve. Let's make sure we've actually explained to you what it is we do. And importantly, what it is we're not going to do or we can't do today. And then once we're aligned on that and we've priced it correctly and all that stuff, then we should sign you up. I think Got there's it. one of the challenges we have again is like the buyer may or may not know a lot about accounting and sort of maybe what the typical firm would do or not do. So everyone shows up with kind of their own preconceptions about what it is the pilot is going to do for them. Got and it. if those preconceptions don't match what it is we actually do, 
that's a problem. Yeah. And that's a problem that's aggravated actually by like, oh, well, I trust my sales rep and I seems to know what they're talking about. And like they do. And one of the jobs is to make sure that you understand what it is you're buying so that we're both set up for success. Yeah. It's one of those things where the we ran into this where trust, they're like, oh, I didn't know that this was what is. And we're like, how do you not know that? Like, you know, but sure. it's interesting. I think that that alignment that you said of kind of combining the brand that builds the trust as well as the expertise that clearly needs some mechanical explanation of what they're getting is so, so powerful. I know we're short on time. So a couple of like quick, you know, kind of more personal questions. Sure. They're not actually, that makes it weird. So let me, let me just ask it so you know it's not weird. What was your first job ever? And what did you learn from it? Let's see. Are we talking about paid jobs or like would an internship count? Where do you want? Whatever you want, whatever you want. My first like real job, I'm not going to count like shelving books at the library, which was like an unpaid thing I did for some summers or like, you know, was actually, this was, I guess it was like my, it was senior years before, it was after high school and before college. And I actually got a little, like a programming job at a tiny consultancy that was sort of in the town I grew up in. And we worked on some like component of a larger system. It was like some government contracting project. What did I learn there? I think I really learned about sort of like the importance of having a great team. Like it was just like very small, tight knit, like group of folks where there was like real, I don't know, devotion to the craft of like doing the job well. And I think one of the things that probably I did not realize explicitly there, but has been a through line in this stuff that I've kind of done since then is like, your team matters so, 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 so much. And I've said this in the past, it's like, I would work on anything with like my co-founders or our team. We happen to be doing this particular thing. And I think it's a good business and I'm excited to solve it and all that good stuff. But like, I actually almost like care more about the team than I do the product or the space. Got it. I like that. What did your parents do? And what'd you learn from them? My parents mostly worked for the government. You know, my dad started out um, teaching Arabic at the university level. And then there's a part of the State Department where they basically like teach diplomats foreign languages. And both my parents work there, actually. That's cool. I think one of the interesting things about like the folks who choose to become diplomats or to work in the Foreign Service or work in the State Department is like almost in a self-selecting way. It is a very outward looking, like inclusive is maybe the right word, maybe not like environment. Like fundamentally, you're you're going to go and live in some totally different country with some totally different cultures some totally different language like completely different like expectations about how things are done and like you're signing up for that and you're signing up for it because you think it's interesting and so there is this certain amount of listen and this is actually a thing i think about all the time at work like just because they don't do it our way doesn't mean that their way is worse there are like there's more than one way to do it right and like you know there's a distinction between kind of like stylistic like taste and like is this effective i like that Awesome, man. Well, where can people find you and anything you want to promote? Um, well, you can shoot me an email with cmatpilot.com. As you mentioned, I write a fair bit about startups and startup things on Substack. So wasim.substack.com. And then if you're a founder or a business owner, you know, a founder or a business owner, obviously we'd love to help out on bookkeeping, tax prep, budgeting, forecasting. You can just check us out at pilot.com. Awesome, man. Thanks. Of course. Thanks for having me. A huge shout out to Wasim for doing the podcast. Now you have what it takes to scale effectively and nail those first impressions. Today, we talked about end-to-end ownership of a problem, having a marketing-led sales motion, how to nail your content distribution plan, applying TLC to every aspect of customer experience, and identifying a consultative advisory-driven salesperson. 
Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review on the podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and hey, we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Thank you.